historical evidence of organized work stoppages from as far back as 1152 BC when royal necropolis workers laboring under 20th dynasty pharaoh Ramses III walked out on their jobs due to a lack of pay from the government. This walkout apparently had its intended effect as the government figured out how to pay them shortly thereafter. We also have historical evidence of walkouts by so-called plebeians, ordinary working folk, in ancient Rome. According to documentation on the matter, workers across several industries stopped work for a time to protest what they considered to be unfair conditions for their fellow laborers, many of whom served in the government's legions, their military, but were then imprisoned and used as slave labor by their creditors, those they owed money for a variety of reasons, many of which tied back in some way to how society was structured and the consequent disparity between these two groups, the working-class plebeians and the wealthy, asset-owning patricians. The concept of a general strike, as far as historical documentation tells us at least, emerged during the Industrial Revolution in Britain when a labor reform document called the Chartist Petition was rejected by Parliament in 1842, despite the more than three million signatures the presenters had acquired. This document which was basically just a signed version of a document called the People's Charter, focused on six reforms that would allow non-landowning men of 21 years or older to vote via secret ballot, would allow people who don't own property to become members of parliament, would institute paychecks for members of parliament, which would allow non-independently wealthy people to pursue a career in politics, would adjust how constituencies are measured so that it's based on the number of people rather than the amount of land in a region, and would institute annual elections for parliament with the intention of stifling bribery and intimidation in politics. The rejection of this petition triggered a strike that began in coal mines, then spread to factories, mills, and other fundamental industries that were vital to Britain's growth and wealth and power at the time. What differentiates this strike from other strikes that took place previously, including those by craftsmen in Poland in 1619, indentured servants in the colony of Virginia in 1661, silver miners in Mexico in 1766, weavers in Scotland in 1787, textile workers in New Jersey in 1835, and navy yard laborers in Washington, D.C. that same year is that this strike was well-planned, politically motivated, in the sense that it had ends that were served by means of striking in this way. And it was general in the sense that laborers across industries joined in. The working class became a political entity in Britain at this moment, because it became clear that by working together, by organizing and acting as a unified front, they could challenge and hurt if they chose to do so, the people who otherwise held all the power and all the resources. 
What I'd like to talk about today is a series of contemporary strikes arising at a very interesting and tumultuous moment in economic and social history, and what these strikes in aggregate might portend for where we're headed next. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There are quite a few articles I could start with today, but I chose one with a headline I think concisely sums up the topic I'd like to focus on in this episode. The piece comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Strikes are sweeping the labor market as workers wield new leverage. It would be difficult at this point to provide a complete list of the different groups on strike, or recently on strike, even just in the U.S. right now, or throughout 2021 up until this point. As of the day I'm recording this, a group representing film and television crews has reached a deal with studios to the relief of some, but anger, of others who don't think they got a very good deal out of the new arrangement. So a threatened strike in that industry would seem to have been avoided for now. But there are strikes ongoing in the automobile industry, bourbon industry, amongst healthcare workers at hospitals, group home workers, bus drivers and service people, breakfast cereal makers, tractor builders, and building engineers, among many, many others. At least 176 strikes have been launched in the U.S. alone in 2021, and most of the folks on strike are asking for better work conditions in terms of health and safety measures, better pay, as some are making relatively low wages, either compared to other comparable industries or compared to the general average or even minimum wage in their region. And because in some cases their industries have been raking in all kinds of money over the course of the pandemic, but the workers haven't typically shared in that bounty and instead have been asked to work longer hours in worse conditions for what amounts to the same pay during a pandemic. Now, some of these strikes, like the one threatened by the aforementioned film and television crew union, and another by carpenters in Seattle, have either been avoided or settled. In the latter case, it took three weeks of striking before the Carpenters' Union was able to hash things out with their employers to both sides good enough to avoid a strike satisfaction. In some cases, the changes made in the wake of a successful, in the sense that workers, won some kind of more favorable change to their relationship with those who pay them, in some cases, these successful strikes lead to pay increases, while in others they lead to investments by the employers in better health care, safer conditions at work, or the promise to hire more people so workers aren't forced to suffer through massive amounts of overtime or risk losing their jobs. This is an interesting time for labor-related action on this scale, though. In part because in the U.S. especially, labor union membership has been on a downswing for decades. About 20% of American workers were in unions back in 1983, and that's down to 11% as of 2020. But it's also interesting because, and this is the writing on the wall with so much of what's happening in the world right now, 
It's interesting because we're at a sort of pivot point in history as the confluence of pandemic-related changes and climate change-related concerns are melding into actual shifts in the previous status quo. And as a consequence, a whole lot is happening all at once, pretty much across the board. No industry, no realm of life spared. And because of that, it's nearly impossible to untangle the causal strings to see what's leading to which outcome, with any certainty, at least. Much less to a degree that we're able to predict where those strings might take us next. One of the macro-scale issues sparking this wave of strikes is what many economists are calling missing workers. Basically, the U.S. economy is short something like 4.3 million laborers, and though some expect this shortage to end within a year or two, others are saying it may be a permanent thing. That claimed permanence is predicated on a theory that although there are industries that have shrunk during the pandemic but will probably reinflate if and when things normalize into some safer, less locked down shape, other industries have either partially disappeared over the course of the past year and a half or they've pivoted in such a way that the previous paradigm no longer applies and almost certainly won't apply in that hopefully near-future updated state of normalcy either. Restaurants, for instance, are expected to do better when more people are out and about, socializing in person again. But they're also expected to change in permanent ways as a consequence of all this, reorienting in part or entirely toward the delivery and pickup revolution that has been stimulated and reinforced during the pandemic. There are other industries, like the beef industry, that have likewise been upended by all this, as slaughterhouses have had to close due to infection outbreaks and carbon dioxide shortages triggered by supply chain backups that CO2 typically used to both knock out animals before killing them and during the meat packing process. But this industry is also looking at a future in which meat protein alternatives are becoming more popular every year, and governments around the world are looking to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by huge numbers in a relatively short period of time. Beef is one of the most emission-heavy foods one might produce. So there's a good chance that even after outbreaks are no longer a threat, and even setting aside the speculative nudging at a first place that they'll perhaps see as a consequence of changing dietary habits, the beef industry will still shrink and shrink and shrink with the folks employed by beef-producing companies left with no longer applicable skill sets and the companies that previously employed them going out of business if they failed to pivot hard towards something more relevant to where we're headed as an economy. Rather than missing workers, then, what we're really looking at is a misalignment of today's workers with the jobs of tomorrow. And that's true in the vaguely science fiction sense of not having enough people who can code in the right language and produce augmented reality entertainment experiences, but also in the sense of people who are accustomed to working at slaughterhouses, finding themselves with a skill set honed over the course of decades that no one needs, and which in some cases might still be necessary somewhere, but not to the same degree and at the value level they previously enjoyed. 
which might mean reduced wages, reduced health care, and other benefits. Basically an overall step down for some people in some fields. As of the day I'm recording this, there are around 10 million jobs currently open in the United States. And one of the persistent complaints of the past year or so is that business owners want to keep the doors open, but they can't because they can't find enough people to work the jobs they have available. In some cases, these business owners later report that they filled the positions after upping the pay they were offering. In other cases, even a moderate pay bump doesn't help them fill that gap. Sometimes there just aren't any qualified candidates in their area that are willing and able to work for what they, as a business, are able to offer while still staying profitable as a business. And sometimes, the sense is more like this is a position, a job, that won't be offered for much longer. Either the business will go under, or they'll figure out a way to reshape or rescale or automate so that they don't need as many people bussing tables or washing windows or slaughtering cows as before. Some of those empty employment seats are the consequence of layoffs and firings that occurred during the pandemic. Others are the consequence of people quitting, which they've done in record numbers over the past 18 months, in some cases because the government benefits provided to unemployed people gave folks a sort of safety net they could use while changing their career and employer, something they've long wanted to do maybe, but never had the financial security to attempt. Many people who quit their jobs reported that they either couldn't deal with the ever-increasing hours and demands made of them by their employers as the pandemic maundered on, while others indicated it was just time for a change. Maybe they've always wanted to do some other type of work. Maybe they thought this would be a good time to recommit to their education. Maybe they had just had it with their employers, some of which, those that were able to stay open, and close to fully functional, anyway, accumulated record-making fortunes in the midst of a global pandemic, often on the backs of overworked frontline employees who remained in harm's way with little or no financial incentive to keep doing so long-term. It was predicted by many economists and policymakers that the end of enhanced unemployment support would push a lot of people back into some kind of employment, whether they wanted it or not. But the shift in numbers as that support ran out wasn't substantial. And now many labor prognosticators are thinking of this as more of a generational realignment thing. We'll eventually have the right people with the right skills in the right locations for tomorrow's jobs, which are already arriving today. But we don't have enough of them lined up just right quite yet. And in the meantime, much of what is available will either be out of reach for those looking to be hired or will be insufficiently rewarded financially and otherwise to appeal to the majority of people who might take those jobs. It's a misalignment of skills and jobs, basically, not an issue of people not wanting to work or employers not having jobs available. Adding to this issue are semi-regular and unpredictable school shutdowns, insufficient childcare services, and habits that have been recalibrated to line up with a video-call-oriented world. 
It's not easy to go back to an office for some people after having enjoyed the comparable freedom of working from home all day, possibly with one's kids, possibly just with the ability to cook for oneself, or to not have to endure a daily commute, and to enjoy a modicum of privacy while working each day. There's also a dramatically reduced ability to cross borders under our current pandemic conditions, which means folks who would usually travel seasonally to where the work is, where they can earn relatively more for their labor, filling in those misalignment-related gaps, are not able to make those journeys, preventing some people with the relevant skills and desire to work for the wages offered from getting to where those jobs are located. And this is the case all around the world. In some situations, this issue is amplified by political decisions related to immigration. But in most cases, this has been the consequence of border lockdowns and more stringent controls on who can go where and for how long because of COVID. These strikes are connected to these ongoing economy-roiling employment-related forces. People are pissed off that they're not being paid what seems fair to them based on the current economic and social circumstances, are upset that their employers are trying to change their contracts in ways that are favorable to the company but not to the employee, or are just looking for something better at a moment when many of us are questioning a lot of things about how we've always lived our lives and what we've prioritized in the past. The strikes are also being seen as a sort of opportunistic move by some, because, frankly, with worker shortages at these levels and companies able to make vast fortunes if they can stay open and functional for the duration of the pandemic, workers are in a pretty good negotiating position. If they strike, that could cost their employers even more than it usually would, and there's less of a chance they'll just be replaced by other people hired off the street until the strike can be broken. This is reinforced to some degree by all the other moving parts of this pandemic-slash-climate-change pivot, as workers at different points along various supply chains have the ability to produce outsized waves that can ripple across the global economy if their demands, or something close to their demands, are not met. It seems likely that we'll see more of this, and that we'll see unions around the world trying to lock in the gains that they've made over the course of this past year and a half, with their popularity booming and their leverage more substantial than it's been in a very long time, which could mean that workers in a slew of different fields will be in a better negotiating position moving forward, too, relative to where they are today, and definitely to where they were a year and a half ago assuming the unions continue to do a decent job at using that newfound leverage, at least. This doesn't seem to be a universal shift, though, as people engaged in gig work, in particular, have been left without much leverage at all because of their more transient and very soft relationship with the companies that pay them. For a while, it seemed like as many industries as could manage it would move toward this model because it gives essentially all the power to the employers compared to a more traditional hirer-hiree relationship. But we may actually see less of it as slow-simmering regulations that threaten to dampen the financial benefits of using gig labor in countries around the world come to fruition 
or continue to threaten to come to fruition, and as workers continue to leverage the power they have to not just work, but also to establish firmer toeholds within companies that could previously afford to lose them, but which today cannot be as certain that they will fill their role if that employee or that group of employees do decide to leave. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. I think this is probably the third or fourth book by Pollan that I've read, and all of them have been excellent. He's a very open-minded guy, and he explores the topics that interest him with a good deal of granularity without losing sight of the big-picture macro context in which he's having the discussion. In this case, this book is about three different substances, opium, caffeine, and mescaline, and the chemical composition, the history, the products or drugs that we make out of these substances, and what they do to us. And that exploration is very fascinating, especially, for me at least, the contextualization of caffeine as a drug that is comparable in many ways to these other sorts of drugs that are demonized and banned and outlawed and have been across history in various places for various reasons. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, different written and audio things that I make at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.